Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American literature using the Library of America as my source material, looking at about a 100 pages per episode while giving my commentary thoughts and some historical context. In this episode, we'll be continuing our examination of the novels of the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, in the last couple episodes, we worked on Claude McKay's Home to Harlem. In this episode, we'll be looking at Nella Larson's Quicksand. It's really one of the most important, one of the most important things about Harlem Renaissance writing is the quasi-autobiographical nature of so much of the writing. Uh, nowhere is this really seen better than in Nella Larson's novel Quicksand. In a lot of these novels, the mage characters are almost stand-ins for, for the writers. Nella Larson was born in 1891. Her father was a West Indian cook from the Danish West Indies, so she had this Danish background. Her mother was a Danish immigrant to the U.S. Her father died and she was raised by her mother and her stepfather, who was also Scandinavian. So she grew up in a very interesting situation, raised by immigrant whites, but would have been seen by most Americans as colored. The color line must have been a really big factor in her upbringing and consciousness. Making things more interesting is Nella White. Nella, Nella had a white sister. In fact, her other novel, I won't be looking at it in this podcast because it's not in the Library of America collection, but um, that's Nella Larson's other book is called Passing, and it's about passing, um, which is fine. We'll be, the next novel we're going to look at, Plum Bun, is all about passing. That is white or black people uh, living lives as whites, usually in cities. So Nella Larson spent some of her childhood in Denmark and went back there throughout her upbringing, even taking courses at the University of Copenhagen. She was expelled from Fisk at one point. Uh, and I think there some of the resentment she has towards black universities is reflected in this novel Quicksand and maybe that's connected to it. For a while, she worked at Tuskegee, which was the university established by Booker T. Washington. But she quit that and moved to New York City, where she became a librarian and an author. Quicksand was published in 1928. Her husband was a scientist, Elmer Imes, the second African-American to earn a PhD in physics. This marriage lasted until 1933, in part because Imes, Imes had an affair while he, while he took a job at Fisk. He, she fell off from the literary world around this time in the early 1930s, becoming a nurse, which is the job she had for much of her later life. She spent some of her time in Europe working on a novel called Mirage, which was rejected for publication and has not survived. She's most well known for these two novels, Quicksand and Passing. And as I said, I won't be reading Passing at this point. But do not fear, our next episode will be about a colored woman passing as white in New York City, and that is Fawcett's Plum Bun. And I do want to acknowledge that this is the first time in this podcast that we're looking at a female writer. Uh, the first writer we looked at when I started this was Melville. Then we did Frank Norris. Then we did um, started into the Harlem Renaissance. And, and so Nella Larson is, is our first female writer. Certainly won't be our last, um, but she has that honor. So with that, on to Nella Larson's Quicksand. Now, let me come out and write and say that there's a lot to love about this novel. It's barely over 100 pages. So I'll just be looking at it in one episode, but I probably could have explored this for several episodes or at least two because there's really a lot of rich material in it. Uh, so I might be skipping some sections or zipping through a few parts, but I, I hope to hit the main um, highlights. 
As the novel opens, we're introduced to our character, Helga Crane. Crane is a reflection of Nell Larson. Larson had a black father and a white mother. Crane, our character, also had a black father who survived, I think, and a white mother who died, um, but not before marrying someone else. So this is a marriage that the character Helga resented. So this is very much like Larson's real life, raised by in a white family. She is described in the book as quite elegant. Um, an observer, this is right from the first page, an observer would have thought her well-fitted to the framing of light and shade. A slight girl of 22 years with narrow sloping shoulders, a delicate but well-turned arms and legs, she had nonetheless an air of radiant, careless health. In vivid green and gold negligee and glitter, glistening brockled mules, deep sunk in the, high, in the big high-backed chair against whose dark tapestry her sharply cut face with skin like yellow satin was distinctly outlined. She was, to use a hackneyed word, attractive. Black, very broad brows over soft yet penetrating dark eyes and a pretty mouth, whose sensitive and sensuous lips had a slight questioning petulance and a tiny dissatisfied droop. All right. There you go. So she's, she's a good-looking young woman. She's really frustrated with her life and work. She's a teacher at a school called Naxos. Naxos is essentially Tuskegee with a new name. It's, it's a lightly um, fictionalized version of Tuskegee. Tuskegee, of course, was established by Booker T. Washington um, as, a, as a university for, for black people, focusing on vocational education, focusing on uplift, um, focusing on, on work. There is a kind of a work-study kind of ethos in Tuskegee. And it was uh, really the central cornerstone of, of Booker T. Washington's life. And a lot of his philosophy came from the work he did there. Um, in, the, in a sense, we could look at quicksand as a criticism of the type of education pursued at places like, like Tuskegee. She is frustrated with the focus on uplift and how that limits her students. And we also feel that the real problem is our hero, Helga, feels very limited by Naxos. It is simply too conservative for her and this conservative is reflected in part by the more, her more fashionable dress compared to the blandness of the rest of the faculty. Here's what she says about it. This great community, she thought, was no longer a school. It had grown into a machine. It was now a showplace in the black belt, an exemplification of white man's magnanimity, a refutation of black man's inefficiency. Life had died out in it. It was, Helga decided, now only a big knife with cruelly sharp edges ruthlessly cutting all to a pattern, the white man's pattern. Teachers as well as students were subjected to pairing process, for it tolerated no innovations, no individualisms, ideas it rejected, and looked with open hostility on one and all who had the temerity to offer a suggestion or even so mildly express a disapproval. So that is, again, part of the problem with Tuskegee is just conservative, and it really, she thought, limits the potential of black students in their imagination, their creativity, uh, and independence and individualism. Trying to, really, the, the reason is this focus on uplift. And here we almost have a, a, a macro criticism or a, a, an examination of the debate going on in the Harlem Renaissance writing itself, whether individualism and uh, of writers, uh, writers' efforts to explore black life as it is should be emphasized, or do you agree with uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who thought that the Harlem Renaissance writing, writing should be propaganda? And go back to my episode on, on Jean Toomer's Kane for more on that debate. So anyway, she decides to leave Naxos. 
Um, it's a bit strange the way she leaves. She's faculty and it's the middle of the semester. And I, I've taught from time to time and I've felt like quitting in the middle of semesters, certainly. But it's it's a big it's 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 kind of outside of etiquette to do that unless you're really sick or have some other reason you need to leave because you know someone has to take over those classes the students are kind of left um in the air so she's essentially walking out on her contract at this point she does try to talk about this with her friend margaret and then later with the president of the school dr anderson anderson is an important character in this novel um because he shows up later on there's a lot of sexual tension between helga and anderson that is a theme that develops throughout the story um, Anderson tries to give her the regular talk about how she can help the students and how she's needed and blah, blah, blah. You know, the, the, the kind of thing you might expect. And here she responds very harshly and openly about this. Well, for one thing, I hate hypocrisy. I hate cruelty to students and to teachers who can't fight back. I hate backbiting and sneaking and petty jealousy. Naxos, it's hardly a place at all. It's more like some loathsome venomous disease. Ugh. Everybody spending his time in a malicious hunting for the weaknesses of others, spying, grudging, scratching. And he tries to explain this away. He says that this is, this is actually necessary. I see. Someday you'll learn that lies, injustice, and hypocrisy are part of every ordinary community. Most people achieve a sort of protective immunity, a kind of callousness towards them. And if they didn't, they couldn't endure. I think there's less of these evils here than in most places. But because we're trying to do such big things to aim so high, the ugly things show more. They irk some of us more. Service is like clean white linen. Even the tiniest speck shows. And so this is his response. Now, there's a bit of hypocrisy in Anderson's response because we'll know, learn later on that Anderson is just as disgusted with Naxos and he, he quits too eventually uh, and comes to New York. So this opening parts of the novel, the first few chapters, set up the plot. We have a young mixed race woman leaving her job for Chicago without any money, without any career plans. But it also sets up the character, arrogant, a bit self-centered, highly individualistic, not necessarily that concerned about the needs of others. Um, uh, yeah, a bit self-interested. I do not think the intention of Larson is to suggest that she is uh, a, an attractive character inside and out. Uh, in fact, we are introduced to her in the opening pages as a, externally attractive, but over the these first few chapters, we start to see a darker, or at least a, a, a more, a less, less attractive uh, inner side to her character. And the fact that she's walking out on her students and her employer, you know, really because she just doesn't believe in the mission of the place she's working at. So she comes off as a tad petulant and a little more reckless and indifferent to others. And now that I'm saying this, I'm thinking maybe I'm being a bit contradictory because I was praising this kind of, uh, attitude in Omu of workers kind of shifting from job to job. Um, so I'm going to have to think about that. Uh, maybe it's my own background as, as, as having been a teacher in the past that I, I feel that you shouldn't walk out in the middle of the semester. Uh, but anyways, she leaves. She leaves Naxos. She goes to Chicago and she visits her white uncle, Mr. Nielsen. Now, when she knocks on the door of this house, a woman, we, you know, we learn she's Mrs. Nielsen, answers. Helga did not know that her uncle married, and Helga is forced to identify herself as Mr. Nielsen's niece. It's all rather embarrassing because Helga was never told that her uncle had married, and the woman she marries is very racist uh, and very upset that her husband's brother 
her husband's sister, sorry, her husband's sister had this biracial kid. So it's a bit of an embarrassment to her. And she doesn't want to have her husband have any relations with her, his niece. It's a rather disturbing scene, and it really shows how devastating the color line could be for families that were intersected through it. So basically, Mrs. Nielsen says, never come here again. Um, and in fact, we don't even hear about Mr. Nielsen for, for, for a year. Helga delays finding a job for a while. She eventually resorts to going to an employment agency run by the, the TWCA. What is that? Let me look it up in a second. Oops, that's my bad. It's, it's the YWCA. I just um, typed it wrong. The Young Women's Christian Association. Yeah, TWCA, that didn't look right. Um, so, but now this is an interesting passage and it's something I can empathize with a little bit. She's someone with a bit of education. Um, and, you know, I have a bit of education too. I've suffered through periods of dubious employment. Uh, you know, I, I spent uh, a bit of my life chasing someone uh, across the United States, giving up temporarily my education. I, I had to go to employment agencies and, you know, I had a lot. I was severely educated, to, to put it lightly. And these employment agencies, you know, they're used to people maybe with college degrees, but not post-graduate uh, degrees. Uh, I didn't have really much work experience and they didn't know where to put me. Uh, so I can understand the situation quite well. The workers typically are setting up people for the general labor market and really don't know much about finding work from educated people. And they're very sensitive about giving you know, just like factory jobs or serve, right, you know, service jobs that don't require a higher education to people who have that, those qualifications. They tend to assume that you'll not accept that work that doesn't match your education. So they feel they really can't help you or they'll simply push your application to the bottom of the pile. Now, um, this is sort of what happens to Helga. She goes to the YWCA and they kind of like look at her and like, you really want to work these kinds of jobs? You mostly have domestic service. And she's like, well, I'll, I'll do what I have to do. And they, they don't really believe her on that. And her, her application gets kind of pushed to the bottom of the pile. Now, fortunately, they do find a job that they think will work for her. The job is helping a, a black intellectual, Mrs. Hayes Rohr, to help her put together her speeches on a speaking tour. So down to her last $5, Helga must accept this job. And it, it, it seems to kind of fit her. Uh, this woman, Hayes Roy, is a bit like Helga in some ways. She's very self-assured, very dismissive of others, a bit too certain of her own righteousness. She even makes it clear to Helga that she has no need to really have help with her ideas. All she needs is someone to help put together her speeches. What excited Helga about the job, though, is that it will take her to New York, where she thinks, I'll give up on Chicago, I'll try a new place in, in New York when I get there. So she takes the job. And the next couple of chapters detail Helga's transition to New York. We learn about Hayes Royce's talks, and we learn how that they're mostly derivative of other thinkers. So, you know, I don't quite know how to think about this character. We don't meet her much, and she's there more or less to help Helga make the transition to New York City. But, you know, we learn that she's not a very original thinker, and she's sort of being parasitic on other black intellectuals of the time. Quote, this is on page 335 of the Library of America version of this book. The speeches proved to be a mere patchwork of other speeches and opinions. Helga had heard other lecturers say the same thing in Devon and again in Naxos. 
Ideas, phrases, and even whole sentences and paragraphs were lifted bodily from previous orations and published works of Wendell Phillips, Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, and other doctors of the race's ills. For variety, Mrs. Hayesroar had seasoned hers with a peppery dash of Du Bois and a few vinegary statements of her own. Aside from these, it was, Helga reflected, the same old thing. Um, so this gives her, uh, this character a bit of an aura of opportunism, or maybe it's a criticism that Nella Larson is giving of, of kind of the vapidity of, of black writers and black uh, kind of speakers at this time, really not saying anything new, just regurgitating the same old arguments and, and theories about black life that have been going on for, for decades. So uh, she does come to New York, and she comes to like New York, and she's able to use Hayes Roy's recommendation letter and some of her connections to get some work. She makes friends, uh, and she makes friends with people who agree with her dislike of Naxos. She even gets a place to stay with a young woman, Anne Gray, who is well-propertied. Um, so this is how we are by chapter eight of the novel. Thus established, secure, comfortable, Helga soon becomes thoroughly absorbed in the distracting interests of life in New York. Her secretarial work with the Negro Insurance Company filled her days. Books, the theater, parties used up the nights. Gradually, in the charm of this new and delightful pattern of her life, she lost that tantalizing oppression of loneliness and isolation, which always it seemed had been a part of her existence. So at the end of chapter eight, Helga's in a relatively good place. It seems she's successful. She has a job. She's starting to make friends. She's in an environment where she can feel she can touch that individualism and free thought that she thought was missing in Naxos. So she's in good, a good situation. But her happiness does not last. In this way, she reminds us a bit of Jake from Home to Harlem. But it, it's the difference here, I guess, is that Jake... Well, it's Jake's working class. That's, I guess that's the, the big difference here. But we have two, two characters in Jake and Helga who move around a lot and, and have a little bit of discontent and, uh, in their employment and in their lives. So Helga's happiness does not last long. She's simply unable to find a stable happiness. And instead, she's kind of had this building up of steady discontent. Um, you know, maybe she's that kind of person. And again, I sympathize with this a little bit. You know, you're, in a, you're at a place a couple years and then you get bored and you want to move on to somewhere else. I'll confess that, you know, the longest I've lived in my adult life in any one place has been like three and a half years. So I, I kind of understand this feeling a little bit. But she starts to have this growing discontent. She even begins to break down a bit with Anne, the person she's living with, due to Anne's constant talking about social justice, which Helga thinks is contradicted by Anne's elitism and her dislike of working class black life. Quote, even the gentle Anne distressed her, perhaps because Anne was obsessed with the, by the race problem and fed her obsession. She frequented all the meetings of protest and subscribed to all the complaining magazines and read all the lurid newspapers spewed out by the Negro yellow press. She talked, wept, and ground her teeth dramatically about the wrongs and shames of her race. At times, she also lashed her fury to surprising heights for one by nature so placid and gentle. And though she would not, even to herself, had admitted it, she reveled in this orgy of protest. Social equality! Equal opportunity for all, was her slogans, often and emphatically repeated, and preached these things that honestly thought that she believed them, but she considered it a front to her race 
and to all the very colored people that made Lenox and 7th Avenue the rich spectacles for which they were, for any Negro to receive on terms of equality to white people. And then it goes on talking about how she, she kind of has a disgust with working class black life in New York, but she still you know, pushes this agenda of social equality. So it's a very classist kind of interpretation of, of equality. Essentially, she sees in Anne the same problem she sees in Naxos, right? Uh, high talk about uplift and progress and equality, but actual uh, at the, the foundation of a pretension based on kind of class and propriety and, and, and righteousness. She learns that her old boss from Naxo, Dr. Anderson, is working in New York. He is unhappy with Naxos as well, and there are loads of sexual tension between them. None of this is really openly spoken of, but Anderson will be a major driver of Helga's actions in the second half of the novel. It's around this time that Helga gets a letter from her uncle breaking off their relationship prematurely. The letter explains that, you know, I wanted to have this relationship with you. You know, I cared about my sister and I wanted to help take care of you. I had money set aside for when I died, you would inherit it. But I basically have to buy you off now. That's what the letter says. So he gives her the $5,000 now and, and then recommends that she moves to Copenhagen because there's family there that it will take her in. And that's what the letter says. It's, it's kind of heartbreaking because she realizes she really doesn't have uh, any family in America. She meets Anderson at a party, and after some brief flirting, Helga essentially rejects his marriage proposal. And we kind of are introduced to another theme of the novel, and that is the difficulty of Helga in finding a marriage partner. Uh, in fact, when she left Naxos, she was leaving behind a fiancé, who also will show up again in this novel, just briefly. Uh, she rejects Anderson. In Copenhagen, when she goes there, she's going to reject a man, too. And these were good matches for her. There are people she liked. There are people that she has an interest in. But there's something in her that just cannot allow her to, to, to get married. So, anyways, rejecting Anderson, she goes off to Copenhagen. She lives there with her aunt. And there, Helga becomes a curiosity among her aunt's friends and acquaintances. She likes it so much, she decides internally to never go back to America. And her reasons are grounded in how the color line acted out in America. And here's one of the important passages of the book. Where is it? It's page 371. Helga Crane didn't, however, often think of America, except in unfavorable contrast to Denmark. For she had resolved never to return to the existence of ignominy, which the old world of opportunities and promise forced upon Negroes. How stupid she had ever been to think that she could marry and perhaps have children in a land where every dark child was handicapped at the start by the shroud of color. She saw suddenly that giving birth to little, helpless, unprotesting Negro children as a sin, an unforgivable outrage, more black folks to suffer indignities, more black bodies for mobs to lynch. No. Helga Crane didn't think often of America. It was too humiliating, too disturbing, and she wanted to be left to the peace which had come to her. Now, maybe that's a, that's end quote, but maybe that's a bit of a problem with Helga's characterization here. She, as this shows, she's turning her back on black America for almost selfish reasons. She justifies it in terms like, I don't want to raise black kids in this environment that's so horrible. But as revealed in the very next line, 
you know, she, for her, it's too humiliating. For her, it's too disturbing. She wanted to be left to the peace which had come to her. Her mental difficulties and questionings have become simplified. So is it just a hedonism that, that she's justifying in, this, in these terms? Uh, I think it might be. Eventually, she catches the eye of a famous Danish painter named Axel Olsen. And after a brief courtship, she also turns down his marriage proposal. So now, why is Helga running away from these marriages? That would improve her status. Part of it is that once again, she gets dis discontent. It seems about one year is about as long as Helga can stay in some place before this discontent grows in her. She gets news that Anne is going to marry Dr. Anderson. So her old friend marries her old kind of heartthrob, Dr. Anderson, back in New York. And this bothers her so much that there must have been some feeling she was suppressing. She is partially afraid that marriage will limit her options, certainly. And as a feminist critique of marriage, it seems to work. So she tries to justify her decision not to marry. Well, she has a bit of schadenfreude here where she says, well, if I had married someone like Dr. Anderson, I'd just be stuck in Harlem complaining about the race problem or something. So she, again, kind of exposes this petulant attitude. Um, there might be like a feminist critique of marriage hidden under the subtext here. Um, but as a racial critique, it also works. She asks herself, why not stay in Copenhagen and evade entirely white American racism? Yet, despite that, she certainly thinks a lot about marriage and she thinks a lot about coupling. And when she gets the news that people she knows get married, she's bothered by that. Um, her rejection of Axel, this Danish painter who's interested in her, has a couple stages. It goes through a couple stages. First, she blames society. An American black woman simply cannot marry a white man. Next, she blames him, Axel, for waiting too long and trying to enter into an informal relationship before finally resorting to marriage. And this is actually a theme that's going to come up in Plum Bun, too. Um, this, the, 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 the game between marriage and kind of the informal sexual relationship. It seems that Axel tried to get have sex with her first or enter into this informal relationship. When that didn't work, he finally said, okay, I'll, I'll marry you. Um, so we should probably doubt her expressed reasons for refusing marriage, it seems to me. But begin to conclude that she just has difficulty setting down in one place happily, whether it's a place or it's in a particular relationship. So finally, she has to change her mind. All she said before about how she should stay in Copenhagen and give her, give, you know, turn her back on black America comes to naught because she's bored. She's out of marriage options. And even her family starts to get annoyed that she refused to settle down and her, her mother's family are kind of like, you know, you could have married that guy and you didn't. And now you want to stay with us. And, and it, it kind of becomes a tense thing there. So she gets forced to go back to America. And this is really another element of her wanderlust, I think it is. And that's if we want to call it that. And it's that she's really divided by the color line. She's surrounded by, surrounded by white. She really misses American blacks. In places like Naxo, she felt confined and bounded in ways that she wouldn't feel in Copenhagen. She certainly has double consciousness. Now, this is double consciousness comes from Du Bois' idea. He also called it the veil. And this is just that American blacks are always going to see themselves, you know, as anyone sees themselves, just as a person, but also at the same time seeing themselves as white people see them, right? Or living in a nation defined by whiteness, 
but then also having an understanding of black life. So it's always you're always looking at yourself or looking at America or looking at any phenomenon in kind of two ways. This is double consciousness. And this is how it kind of comes off in the text, uh, in Ella Larson's text. For the first time, Helga Crane felt sympathy rather than contempt and hatred for that father, who so often and so angrily she had blamed for his desertion of her mother. She understood now his rejection, his repudiation, and the formal calm his mother had represented. She understood his yearning, his intolerable need for the inexhaustible humor and the incessant hope of his own kind, his needs for those things, not material, indigenous to all Negro environments. She understood and could sympathize with this facile surrender to the irresistible ties of race, now that they dragged at her own heart. And as she attended parties, the theater, the opera, and mingled with people on the streets, meeting only pale, serious faces, when she longed for brown laughing ones, she was able to forgive him. Also it was as if in this understanding and forgiveness, or in forgiving, she had come upon knowledge of an almost sacred importance. So it's a rather long passage. It's on page 389, chapter 16 of the book. But it's this uh, realization that leads her to decide to go back to America. Now, is this going to be growth for her or is it just more wanderlust? We will find out. So back to America for Helga. She eventually runs into James Vale, her old fiancé from Naxos, another defector from that school. So that's three people she knows that she's connected with who have defected from Naxos. So Nell Lars is really digging it in that this is not a real healthy place for people. Um, and it really creates a lot of discontent. Not surprisingly, Vale tries to get Helga to marry him. He turns out to be quite elitist and even a bit of a social Darwinist, making an argument that, that basically people like us, educated blacks, should have more children. Quote, the race is sterile at the top. Few, very few Negroes of the better cl class have children, and each generation has to wrestle again with the obstacles of the preceding ones, lack of money, education, and background. I feel very strongly about this. We're the ones who must have the children if the race is to get anywhere. So that's a bit gross. Um, it reminds me a bit of that, that movie Idiocracy. It, it, it's a very popular movie, and I don't really see why. Its opening scene is textbook social Darwinism. Um, but we've got the same kind of logic here. It's that the people with education, the, the better sorts, the, the elite should have more kids. Because if not, then the working classes are going to have all the kids, and that's going to mean a decline of the population. It's, it's social Darwinism. There's no other way to put it. So at the same party, she literally bumps into Anderson, who kisses her. Helga is deeply offended by this, although we suspect she has wanted this for a while. Uh, after kind of the apology, she accepts his invitation to talk about what happened, and he does do a formal in-person apology to her. Disgusted with herself over this incident with Anderson, Helga goes into a church. She becomes involved in church life and is introduced to Reverend Pleasant Green. Very quickly, as far as the novel goes anyway, she marries him. It's, it's a real sudden change in situations for Helga. It is a bit bizarre since Green is almost the antithesis of her other suitors. All her other suitors were, were sophisticated, um, educated, very urban, but Reverend Pleasant Green is a much more vulgar character. He's from the South. Um, 
doesn't seem to have much education. He's not, he's rather indifferent to her and the other people she was interested in had an interest in her, had this kind of pursued her. Green is almost indifferent. And it's really a, a fascinating turn for our character. Her neighbors and the people of the congregation are parochial and humble. So she actually goes to the South and she justifies this on the grounds of uplift almost. And it's almost a complete 180 for our character who leaves Naxos, leaves the South because she doesn't want to get involved in this rhetoric of uplift. She justifies her marriage to Reverend Green on the grounds that, well, maybe she can bring some civilization to the rural South. Um, but here, it's just the, 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 the weakness of this match is exposed uh, towards the end of the novel. What did it matter? For he consumed his food, even the softest varieties, audibly. What did it matter then, though, that he did not work with his hands, not even in the garden? His fingernails were still always rimmed with black. What did it matter that he failed to wash his fat body or to shift his clothing as often as Helga did herself? There were things that more than outweighed this. In, a, in the certainty of his goodness, his righteousness, his holiness, Helga somehow overcame her first disgust at the odor of sweat and stale garments. She was even able to be unaware of it. Herself, Helga had come to look upon as a finicky, showy thing of unnecessary prejudices and fripperies. And when she sat in the dreary structure, which had once been a stable belonging to the estate of a wealthy horse-racing man, about which the odor of manure still clung, now the church and social center of the Negroes in the town, and heard him expound with verbal extravagance the gospel of blood and love, of hell and heaven, of fire and gold streets, pounding with clenched fists the frail table before him, or shaking those fists in the face of the congregation like direct personal threats, or pacing wildly back and forth, and even sometimes shredding great tears as he besought himself them to repent, she was, she told herself, proud and gratified that he belonged to her. End quote. So that's, that's the end. And then in the brutal final two and three chapters we zip through much of Helga's life we find she has children in fact many children she's unhappy all the time she has to put up with the gossipy nature of of the rural south she you know in contrast to the more anonymity she might have had in the city here she's stuck with the gossipy nature everyone's talking about her and she's the reverend's wife of course so of course people are going to talk to her and, and keep an eye on her she finds herself unable to help the people in Alabama becoming not much more than a fish out of, out of water. And she becomes more depressed and more trapped as the novel closes. And at the end of the novel, uh, our character is basically depressed, lacking any freedom, burdened by children, burdened in an unhappy marriage with an indifferent and rather aloof man. And that's it. So that's the story. It is rich. It's a thin novel with a lot going on. But the heart of this interest of its interest is in how we respond to Helga Crane herself as a character. Do we blame her for in, her indecision and capriciousness? Or do we place the blame on the color line and on the social convention she is forced to accept as a biracial woman? Certainly, we do not want to tell her just to suck it up. But also, we feel that she is denying herself happiness for often very flighty and um, silly reasons. The narrator lets us know that her her reasons she verbally gives out are false. What she says to people is not what she thinks inside. But we can never quite grasp why she is refusing people like the painter or Anderson or Valley, all of whom had affection for her and seemed to be a good fit, at least in terms of education level, uh, interests, uh, 
kind of in you know being urban they just seemed a better fit for her and you know if she just chose not to marry and chose to be an independent woman that's one thing but she chose to marry someone who is so different from her it it really is hard to explain the man she marries is sort of character and you know but it's in this tension and in this question that the novel has its power um so now uh, finishing the novel i get to the part of this podcast where i like to explore the themes of each work i do this uh at the end of the episode about a book or at the end of a series about a book um, I'm probably missing a lot, but I'm just going to focus on six themes, partially because this I knew this podcast would be, this episode would be long. Um, so I'm just going to pick on six. Uh, there's going to be a lot more. Um, and if you have ideas about things I missed that are really important, please put them into the, into the comments or, or, or write me an email. The first of these themes is obviously the color line, and you can go back to my, my thoughts about double consciousness and, and how Helga lived lives in these different places, in Naxos, in New York, in Copenhagen, and then back in New York, and then the rural south. In all of these, the color line is a major theme and how she is seen by others, uh, how she sees herself, and it has a lot to do with why she's moving around a lot and having difficulty in finding happiness for herself. Another theme, and I think this is the first time it's come up in this podcast, and that is interracial marriage. Um, we have one interracial marriage, for sure. That is between, or at least, I think they did marry, and then her her father left her. But Helga Crane's father is a, is was a black man, and her mother was white Danish woman. So we got an interracial marriage. How, what that means for the children is more important than what it means for them, because uh, we don't really know much about the marriage. It's it's all in the background. We know it ended. We know that her father left her in part because he couldn't accept living in in white society. Another theme, a third theme, education and uplift. You know, the what is the role of education? Is it to create strong individuals? Is it to improve the population? Is it just to teach skills? That is really at the heart of the dilemma that Helga Crane has over Naxos. And the fact that so many characters leave Naxos disgusted with this rhetoric of uplift um, is important. And one thing I forgot to mention, one of the things that forces Helga to leave Naxos is when she hears a, a speech given by a traveling lecturer who's talking to the students. It's like a, an assembly or something. And he basically says that black people need to accept inequality and focus on uplift. And this really offended Helga Crane. In a, in a sense, we might have Null Larson's critique of Booker T. Washington's approach of, of at least coming to terms with white supremacy while um, black people develop the skills, the education to, uh, of uplift. So um, it, I, I'm guessing Nell Larson has an affinity for Du Bois's approach to racial equality. Another theme is marriage and gender conformity. Um, it seems for much of the novel that Helga Crane is going to be someone who's able to buck marriage, to resist the pressure to marry um, and be a, a, an independent woman. And in the end, she gives in to social convention and marries someone who is very much the conventional man. So um, the pressure she feels for when her friends marry is a, is a theme in the novel. The pressure she gets from her extended family in Copenhagen to marry, all these things put pressure on her. And, and whether she's going to marry or not is a major point throughout the novel. 
And then finally, it's something we saw in uh, Home to Harlem, but that is travel and mobility. Uh, Helga Crane is fairly mobile. She uh, Now, she's privileged in a few ways. She's privileged because she has education, which allows her to move somewhat on her terms. She doesn't have a whole lot of money early in the novel, but she gets some from her relatively wealthy family members. Her uncle leaves her $5,000, which, you know, at the time is about, you know, so it's more than 100000 U.S. dollars in, in, in today's money. So that gave her a little bit of freedom. She had family in Copenhagen, which... Uh, and they were pretty well off. So she was able to have connections, and her education helped her get connections and jobs that, that gave her a little bit of, of freedom. So she's a little bit uh, more of a tourist than a vagabond in the way she travels around, I guess. But that mobility is a big part of her life, and um, one of the reasons she's so depressed at the end of the novel is she's really stuck in one place pretty much for for the rest of her existence. So that becomes a burden for her, and, and she's... She's just, she's just the kind of person who needs to move around to stay happy, I guess. So, six themes. And as I said, there must be many, many more. Even right now, I'm thinking of a few that I, I probably should have mentioned. But anyways, uh, we're at 45 minutes now. So I'm going to put an end to this episode and put an end to Nella Larsa's quicksand. In the next episode, we'll start uh, a three-part series on, on Fawcett's Plum Bun. So with that, I'm going to sign off. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. If you have want to contact me, you can contact me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. You can leave comments. You can subscribe. You can share this. Um, I appreciate if you do that. Uh, I love your support, and I'd love to hear what you feel about these episodes. Uh, with that, I'll go. Uh, thank you again for listening, and I'll see you in 100 Pages. Ah, hello, baby, hello. Yeah, and I stood at the station, watched my baby leaving town. Blue and disgusted, nowhere could peace be found. Ah, hello. Ah, hello.